Joke's on you. I can look down on anybody without a wooden pulpit. Um, <laughs> so normally when I preach, Anthony's out of town, and I realize what a blessing that has been in the past. Uh, but normally our associate pastor, Ladina, who is my emotional support person, she's normally sitting here in the front row, and I normally heckle her for two to five minutes at the beginning of my sermon. And when I was sharing with our supportive, loving team this morning that I was really nervous because I can't make fun of Ladina, they offered to make fun of me. And then when I texted my supportive husband that I was nervous, he also offered to heckle me. And I would just like to say, I am not the heckled. I am the heckler. <laughs> I cannot take it, but I can give it. Um, <laughs> So good morning. Um, I'm going to pray really fast, and I am going to pray that my tablet doesn't die because it's old and terrible. But if you see me switch to my phone, that's why. So Lord Jesus, we love you. And God, we are thankful to um, be able to come together and to worship you and to learn about you. And Lord God, I just pray that um, as I share today, that it would not be my words, but that it would be your words and that our hearts would be softened to what you want to do in your name. Amen. So last week, Anthony preached on um, this idea of we need to move from spiritual milk to spiritual solid foods. And it was a wonderful message. He gave lots of ideas of what we can do to um, make that move. So today, we're going to talk um, about some decision making. Have you ever made a decision and then regretted that decision? Yeah. <laughs> um, I am someone who I will make a decision and I'm all about it. I'm like, this is the greatest decision I've ever made. And then about four seconds after making it, I'm like, I am a failure and what was I thinking? So I, for myself, I have a six week rule. Six week rule of get through six weeks after making a big decision. And if you still hate it, then you can go back to how it was before. But typically by six weeks, I, I feel a lot better about my decision. I feel more confident and a lot calmer. Um, so the book of Hebrews, though, is written to a people who have, they've made a big decision. They've made a big change. And they are beginning to doubt their change, the change that they've made. And the author or the preacher is encouraging them to stick with this decision. And that decision is to follow Jesus. Um, but in today we're going to look at chapter 7, 8, and 9. And chapter 7 starts off immediately by talking about this figure named Melchizedek. And so to even start this sermon, we actually have to go to Genesis. So in Genesis 15, it says, After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the most high God, and he blessed Abraham, saying, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to the God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So this figure, Melchizedek, he's only mentioned in three books of the Bible. First, he's mentioned here in Genesis, and then again in Psalms, and then he's mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews. Um, and so we start these three chapters with the author comparing Jesus to this obscure figure. 
And he actually tells us that Jesus is um, in the line of Melchizedek and that he is the fulfillment of that psalm, the uh, Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who I will eventually be referring to as Mel because that name is too long, too many syllables. Um, so the author then begins to talk about tithing. It says that Abram gives a tenth of everything that he's won in battle to Melchizedek. Um, and we don't Melchizedek is such an obscure figure that we don't actually know. I was texting Anthony, and I was like, is he pagan? Is he a pagan king? He worships. He, it's a, he's a priest of God, but who is Melchizedek? And Anthony didn't have any answers because he was looking at the same five verses that I was looking at because um, that's all there is. And but then uh, the author, he takes this weird turn and he says that Levi, who the Jews have been commanded to bring a tithe to because the tribe of Levi, Levi um, they work in the, in the temple, they worked in the tabernacle, they are the priests. It says that Levi technically tithed to, Mel to Melchizedek because he was still in the loins of his ancestor. And with that, that is the intro to my 35-minute TED talk on why to tithe to your local church. Just kidding. Um, that Spencer did a great job. I don't miss tithe talks. So, but in verse 11 of chapter 7, the author begins to point out the flaws in the Levitical priesthood. It says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So God had set apart the tribe of Levi. They were appointed um, first to carry the Ark of the Covenant. They attended to the tabernacle. They carried it. They set it up. They tore it down. Um, they also attended it once the temple had been built, but they also, um, they carried out the sacrifices for the people, for the nation, for themselves, um, and only high priests, who were also from the tribe of Levi, were allowed to enter the holiest of holies, and even then they were only allowed to once a year. But the the priests were unable to make Israel perfect. They were unable to put perfection on people or to, um, to forgive sins to the point of perfection. And they couldn't even make themselves perfect. They had to offer sacrifices to um, atone for their own sins. So a new priest needed to come, and this priest needed to be able to bring perfection. But Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and Judah is the tribe that's most associated with kings. So the author is trying to make this connection between Jesus, who is from the tribe of Judah, to being a priest. And it says, what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
So um, Melchizedek is this figure who has no beginning and no end because there's no genealogy, there's no tale of his death. It's those three verses in Genesis. He appears and he's called a high priest of God. He blesses Abraham. He receives Abraham's tithe and that's it. So um, we know that he is a king of a place called Salem, and we know that his name means king of righteousness, and we know that because he is the king of Salem, he can also be called the king of peace. And guys, it took a lot of self-control to not deep dive into all of the weird theories about Melchizedek. Um, so one that is less weird is if good old Mel is actually a Christophany. And that means if he is actually Jesus come to earth in the Old Testament. And uh, this is actually me this week. I had the red strings and everything, and I shaved my beard for today. Um, <laughs> so is this Jesus showing up, or is this just a figure that um, the Bible is using to give an image of what Jesus is and, who, and that what is to come through Jesus? Um, I talked to Anthony. He, does, he thinks that Melchizedek was an actual figure and was not a Christophany. Um, and then various commentaries, it's kind of split down the middle. So... Uh, the author says that Melchizedek resembles the son of God because he continues as priest forever. There's no record of his priesthood ending, and uh, chapter 723 says that under the law there was a need for many priests because they could not continue in their duties because of death. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, like Melchizedek holds his priesthood. It says, he, it says Jesus lives always to make intercession for us. In verse 22, um, when I did my first read-through of these chapters, verse 22 in chapter 7 uh, jumped out at me, and this it's a very simple phrase, but I, it was with me for the whole few weeks that I was studying and writing, and it says that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And I'm not going to lie, I immediately had to Google what, do, what is a guarantor, because I knew kind of, but I didn't know really. So a guarantor is someone who um, gives a promise, assurance, or pledge, typically relating to quality, durability, or performance. And then I immediately Googled what is the difference between a guarantor and a cosigner, because I didn't know. Um, and a cosigner is someone who is liable to pay the debt from day one. So if you've had to have someone co-sign for a, a car or an apartment, that person is liable from the very beginning. To If you don't pay, they have to pay. But a guarantor is liable only to pay when the borrower refuses. So months can go by before the guarantor is told, hey, now you have to pay. So it's a small... It's a small difference. Um, but we cannot fulfill the old covenant. We cannot sacrifice enough animals to, to become uh, perfected. And it, doesn't, it just doesn't work. And neither could the Le Levitical priests. And while God provided the law and the sacrificial system, 
he, um, he had a better covenant coming. And so uh, some people believe that like when God made this law in the Old Testament, that he was, he was less knowledgeable, that he didn't know what he knows now. And then eventually he like got more wisdom and he was like, oh, well, I'll go with plan B. Jesus was never plan B. Jesus was always plan A. And the law was given to us so that we would know that we need Jesus. So the God who made the law and gave that to Israel was this, he already was planning for Jesus. So um, this, this is a better covenant. It's based off better promises and it's eternal because Jesus the priest is eternal. And so in chapter eight, the author expounds on this idea. Uh, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he meditates is better, it's enacted on better promises. For the first covenant had, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So again, God gave us this, the, the law and the first covenant so that we would see our faults. It's not that the covenant was fault, had faults, but we have faults that we cannot obtain perfection or closeness to God. And so the, the author refers to the Levitical priesthood as a copy and a shadow set up to give a glimpse of what was coming. And Christ is that faultless covenant. His promises... He promises true forgiveness and salvation. He was perfect and is able to intercede with us without interruption because he is in the presence of God. Um, and so in chapter 9, the author talks about the temple and how it was this holy place. And while the priests were able to go into this first section um, regularly, only high priests could enter the holiest of holies once a year. And they had to offer various sacrifices to be able to go into the holiest of holies. Um, so they offered sacrifices for in individuals, they offered sacrifices for nation, the nation, but they also had to offer sacrifices for themselves to clean themselves and atone for their own sin. So there wasn't this access to the spirit of God, this freedom to um, approach God. And so in verse 11, it says that when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, made, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He answered, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And that's such a big chunk of verse, but it, the Israelites, the Jews, they knew that um, when Moses 
set up the tabernacle and to begin offering the sacrifices, they had to offer atonement, and that was through blood. And so this old system offers this atonement, but Christ's sacrifice offers purification and sanctification. He was not hindered by his own sin like the Levitical priests, and he he is perfect. He was is not busy making sacrifice after sacrifice because his sacrifice was the only sacrifice needed. And he is not stopped by death because he conquered death. And he is in the presence of God continually. And so it says again, there, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise in eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgression committed under the first covenant. Um, And so verse 22 says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the author says that the law and the priesthood system serve as a copy of heavenly things, but Christ entered into the ultimate holy place, which is the presence of God. And this is not made by men like the tabernacle, but he is in heaven with God the Father. And instead of coming and going as the Levitical priests had to do, he, or offering multiple sacrifices, he entered the presence once, and his death was the last sacrifice needed. It bore the sins of many, and it says that he is there in his Father's presence once and for all until the end of the age. And with And then chapter 9 closes with this promise of his second coming, and it says that he's not coming to deal with sin because he dealt with sin in his first coming, but he's coming to save those who eagerly await him. And so why does the author in the middle of Hebrews talk about this weird, obscure figure for almost three chapters, and why does he talk about the Levitical priesthood and and the tabernacle and the temple? And it's because his audience is losing heart. His audience is Jews who have now become Christians, and they are facing heavy persecution. Um, They're facing persecution by their own community, by other Jews, people that they had grown up with, that they did business with. Some of them were their own family. Um, They couldn't go to the synagogue any longer. Their Jewish friends and colleagues were refusing and forbidden to do business with them, so they had lost their community. They, They might have lost family, and they were in extreme poverty. And they're starting to wonder if following Jesus is worth this. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? I've lost so much. Is it worth it to follow this man from Nazareth and... Um, the author brings them to Melchizedek. And he points out that Jesus is, is eternal and forever like Melchizedek's priesthood seemed, and that the, he breaks down why the Levitical priesthood doesn't work. But that they were a copy, and they were just for a time, but they weren't the real deal, and God gave something better and something faultless and something permanent, something unburdened by death, And that's why we call the gospel the good news is because the law was never good news. It was always, this is what we've, where we failed. This is where our fault is. And so Jesus came to co-sign our salvation. We were never going to be able to pay the debt that sin accrued. So if you haven't come to Jesus, maybe you're considering it, or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard about Jesus. Um... And if, if you're trying to decide if you want to commit and you want to follow Jesus and you want to become a Christian, um, 
This is for you. There's nothing, there's nothing in the world that's better than Jesus. There's no Amazon purchase, and I love me some Amazon. Uh, there's no Amazon purchase. There's no lifestyle choice. There's no vacation or guilty pleasure or sin that is better than Jesus. Um, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. And maybe, maybe you have been following Jesus um, but it's hard, and maybe you're losing friends, maybe your family is ridiculing you, or maybe you, you're just missing the things that you used to do, but now you can't because you've given them up to follow Jesus. Um, and you're wondering, is this worth it? And it is, because Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And maybe you um, are, as we find out in the next few chapters, there's generations of believers who experienced uncertainty and loss um, because of their faith, and they were eagerly awaiting to see promises f that God had given them, and um, they believed that Jesus, that God was the was giving them a better covenant, that He was going to fulfill promises even if they didn't see them in their lifetime. Um, so Abraham is the best example. He, he knew God was calling him away from his homeland, away from his family, into uh, unknown and uncertainty, but he did. He stepped out in faith and he followed him because he knew that what God was offering was better than what he had. And so maybe you've, you've been a Christian a long time. Maybe, maybe you're not doubting your faith, but maybe God is calling you into something new. Maybe he's given you something good in this season, but he's asking you to step into a different season. He's asking you to step through an open door, and you're uncertain because you like what you have. That's my problem when I have to make change in my life. I like what I have. I don't want to change. But God, if God is calling you into something, then it's better because he is the guarantor of a better covenant, and he wants to bring you into better things and things that are unhindered by the things of this world. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Um, if you would like prayer today um, for anything, but especially if you, if you are uncertain in your faith or in changes that you need to make in your life, please come forward. Some of our pastors will be here. Um, and then we're just going to worship and we'll have some time of prayer. So Lord, we love you. And God, I just ask that you you would give us faith um, to trust you, to move where you want us to go. And Lord, that we would, we would not doubt that you have better things for us. And Lord God, I just ask that we, we would commit our lives to you and that we would, we would not even miss the things of old, but that we would just move into your promises.